If you open your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 17, I want to talk to you, we're not quite yet to Thanksgiving, but I want to talk to you about pilgrims, not the, kind, not the cute ones with the little hat, uh, but spiritual pilgrims. Uh, as we embrace our identity in Christ and our belonging to him, it's going to lead us to live in a different way than the world around us, an alternative lifestyle, if you will. So follow along as I read God's word for us from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme, the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of God. We'll work on that. I missed it altogether last week. So, uh, but we're going to do that. We're going to add that into our liturgy each week. So let me say it one more time and you say that bold part. This is the word of God. Amen. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this time, and we pray that you would bless and keep us in your care as we listen to your word. Lord, I pray for my own words that you would direct them. And if there be any uncertainty or confusion, let those remain my words, and may they quickly pass. Lord, where there is encouragement and exhortation and edification, I pray those would be your words and they'd remain with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain movies that capture the ethos of a culture. In 1995, there was a movie, and I'm sorry, all of my references continue to be quite dated. You'll just have to stick with me. But in 1995, 10 Academy Award nominations for this movie at the 68th Academy Awards, it won five, Best Picture, Best Makeup, Best Cinematography, Best Sound Editing, and Best Director. That movie was Braveheart, an epic, historical, medieval war drama. It was Mel Gibson portraying William Wallace, a 13th century Scottish warrior who led the Scots in the first war of Scottish independence against King Edward I of England. And it's based on an epic poem from, I believe, the 15th century by Blind Harry. And in the, there's many scenes that are well-known, but there's one in particular that came to mind. It's before battle, and Wallace is riding back and forth among the various Scottish clans that are gathered, and they're very fearful. They look and they see uh, uh, an army that is superior to them. And he begins to speak to them, and he says, I am William Wallace, because they question whether it was him. He has this character, this hero aspect and he says I am William Wallace and 
I'm sparing you my Scottish brogue, by the way, because I don't have one. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Fight, and you may die. Run, and you will live at least a little while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the day? From this day to that, for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives. And if you know the movie, he begins to yell out, but they will never take our freedom. And it's just this high, I mean, like you want to get on a horse and fight yourself. That's how it makes you feel at that time. There's shouts and cheers. It's a rallying cry. And it resonates with us. That connects with our history in our country of fighting against tyranny and the values that we hold dear. And we can even note that there's a spiritual component to freedom. As we recognize we are free in Christ and freed from our bondage to sin and Satan and death. But the freedom that we experience and are called to live out of is radically different at times. And we have to work against what we think we know to what Scripture teaches us. And so Paul reminds us that we battle not against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6. And so our freedom comes about a different way, at least our spiritual freedom. And I want to talk to, me, talk to you about the S word, not stupid or anything else. Submission. Submission is not a very popular word, but the kingdom of God turns upside down our expectation And Christianity is a radical call to freedom through submission. That's my theme this morning. It's a radical call to freedom through submission. And I want to talk about submission to God, submission through authority, and submission for glory. So let's start there with submission to God. Peter has just talked about our identity. We mentioned this last week. We looked at being, verse 9, a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people is for his own possession. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So that's our identity. Well, what does that mean? What is the outworking of that? It's not just theory, but there's a reality behind this and an experience that we're to live out. But that experience that we have in this world always has to come through the lens of who we are in Christ. So we've Mentioned a couple times from chapter 1 that we're born again, born again to a living hope, chapter 1, verse 3. And then later in that chapter, uh, uh, Peter talks about being born again, not a perishable seed, but an imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so if we are this new people, what does that look like? Well, it looks like, like those who submit to God. Submit to the Lord and his sovereignty and how he orders our lives and orders this world, what he commands. We repent of our sin and believe that Jesus has been sent to be the savior of sinners. And all of this means that we are no longer seeking to enthrone ourselves on the throne, but to rightly acknowledge the true king. 
And so we experience that freedom that I said from bondage to sin and Satan. And now we have this dual relationship with the world as a result. We are in this world. That is true. But we are not of this world. Scripture would direct us. And so we have to remember and constantly remember who we are. And look where Peter starts as he's starting this next address to these people of God. Beloved, I urge you, verse 11, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He starts with beloved because they are those who have come to be known by the love of God through Christ. They are this before they are anything else. And so we're going to have to keep coming back to the fact that we are beloved. We are of God and his love. And so we remember that as we talk about everything else in our submission to God. We submit as a reflection of our love for him as we've come to recognize that he loves us first, as First John would say. So while we are still sinners, we're now of a different place. We have a different identity. And so we continue to submit, and that's what we hear in verse 11. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of your flesh. That means we have to submit to God and his commands versus what the world is constantly putting before us. We are sojourners and pilgrims, or aliens and strangers. These are all various translations. ESV, sojourners and exiles. If you're a sojourner, you're someone who ain't from around here and yet find yourselves in a place that is foreign to you. An exile or a pilgrim is someone who's maybe more of a passing through. They don't belong and they may not be able to stay long. Dan Doriani, my professor, says, but both terms suggest that believers belong elsewhere. Strangers have no permanent residence. Aliens rarely hold positions of power and privilege. We live in this in-between. And what the passions of the flesh are doing are trying to draw you and drag you back into bondage. Not the freedom that we have in Christ. Here's one truth about sin. It always deceives. It's always telling you, hey, no big deal. Or you deserve this. It's always false advertising. It always overpromises and underdelivers. And those passions of the flesh that the Lord commands us against actually destroy, destroy our souls. And so when we don't fight against that, we're giving up territory back to the enemy. And so we need to be aware of that. And that might show up in our lust. It might show up in our appetites. It might show up in our seeking to satisfy our pride through gossip and envy. It might be through our lies and on and on. But there's also a motivation here. Keep your conduct, verse 12 says, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a higher goal that we have. 
even though sometimes we will be spoken of as evildoers from the culture perspective, we are bearing witness to our submission to God, which brings us freedom from the tyranny of evil. And so we live a life of submission and that freedom from sin, and we become this living witness to the world around us who is saying, hey, we're free, and yet they remain in bondage. Think about the alcoholic who thinks they're free to drink as much as they would, li- would like, and maybe they are from a legal perspective. And I wouldn't speak against that. That's not my point. But they're in bondage to that alcoholism. Right? Any addiction like that will work in a similar ma- manner. It may look like freedom because we're doing what we want to do when the reality is, is we're doing what we have to do. Because we do not know the freedom of Christ through our submission to Him. And this verse is similar to one of our core principles here is to let our light shine. So Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, the fa- glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the same manner, Peter's saying, they may see our good deeds, and glorify God on the day of submission. And there's debate about whether that's a people coming uh, into a relationship with Christ and yielding, or whether it's something that happens uh, regardless, because every knee will bow. Regardless, the motivation is that we will have a witness in this world that our submission to God speaks of a deeper and greater freedom than the world will ever have to offer But that is not easy. Christianity is simple, but it is not easy. Rachel Gilson is a reflection of radical submission that brings freedom, though our culture would rather celebrate her bondage. And her story is told in Gospel Bound. At her freshman year at Yale, she was sort of the hero uh, from a cultural perspective. She was in love with her girlfriend. She was studying in a very selective humanities program. She was drinking as much as she wanted to. She was living the life. And she says it seemed too good to be true. And again, this would look like freedom to most. But then things started to fall apart, including in her relationship. And that was thrust in her face. And she says, I wondered what my life had become. She hadn't yet lost her social standing. She's still at Yale. But she heard a lecture about a French philosopher, Rene Descartes, and began to wonder whether God is real. She started searching on the internet, and she found a Jesus she really liked, but she wondered if that Jesus would like her. She got frustrated with getting some bad advice from other believers, uncertain what the Bible had to say, and she was about to give up. And then she spotted C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, on her friend's bookshelf. She says she stole it. And she read and read, and she wrote, One day I read between classes in the library, I set it down mid-chapter, and as it dawned on me, there was a God. My heart and my head could no longer deny it. And she ended up giving her life to Christ. And she's written a book, uh, Born Again This Way, and she speaks of her challenge. She's married with children, and yet she struggles with sin. Not everything changes just automatically. Not everything just goes away. But here's what she says. 
She knows that the obedience to God will never lead away from God's blessing. It will always lead us toward it. And the authors of the book that share her story in Gospel Bound say this is the promise he makes to us on his honor. God's approval of us, obtained for us through Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, gives us a far deeper peace and joy than society's approval ever could. Best of all, he doesn't take it away when we mess up or when we don't change quickly enough to be trendy. This is real freedom. Submission to God because we are freed by his love and now want to follow where he leads. His love always comes first. And it is a steadfast love that always keeps his promises. And so we remember that we're beloved as we look at what submission looks like in our lives. So first to God, but also through authority. And this might be a little surprising where Peter now goes. We live in an anti-authority age. There is low trust of institutions and the government. And for good reasons, right? Watch the news. There's plenty of bad coverage about of, of pastors doing wrong, church abuse and the like. Or we see our government misusing what they're supposed to do, right? You see it all again and again. And so we understand that low trust, it's earned in a lot of ways. And our culture, our freedom, uh, the premise of our culture is freedom from tyranny. It's hard-baked into our culture. And we have much blessing as a result. Now we look at what Peter was writing when he was writing and we know that the Roman Empire was not a friend to Christians. And the direction from here is going worse. Nero is known as the first emperor to persecute Christians and lead them to their death. He's accused of killing his stepbrother, mother, wife, and tutor so that he could ascend to power. And the historical accounts are not kind to him. He's accused of Again, being the first emperor to kill Christians in A.D. 64, probably about the time that Peter would have been writing this letter. In that summer, 10 out of 14 of the districts in Rome caught fire. Now, fires were common, but this was more widespread. And so rumors began to spread that Nero had done it on purpose so that he could rebuild the city as he longed to do. And in order to squash those rumors, what did Nero do? He blamed a little group of unpopular people known as Christians. He made a spectacle of their punishment. Some were killed by dogs. Some were fastened to crosses. crosses. Some were burned at night like lamps. And Peter is likely writing prior to that. And he may have even been martyred at that time. So it may be surprising to hear what he writes to these churches that are full of sojourners and exiles within the empire who are in danger at times for their following of Christ. Look at what verse 13 says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or verse 14, or the governors is sent to him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. But here's what Peter is doing. He's giving us a higher principle 
than simply the circumstances that we live under. He recognizes that the Lord is the ultimate authority. So when we submit to God, that's the ultimate authority. But he also institutes lower or lesser authorities that we are called to submit to. He speaks about governing authorities and the emperor. And again, when the sheriff's deputies were here on on Wednesday, one of the things that they were saying is to the children, when you need help, when someone breaks into your house, when someone's hurt, who do you call? You call them. Because they are the authorities that have been given the power to execute and to, to to protect and to provide. And, of course, we have court systems and those sorts of things. But this is what Peter's doing. He's recognizing this principle. And I'm grateful for that reality in our country. Even though injustices happen, courts fail, and there can be people who do the wrong things. In general, we can trust that, can't we? Because God has ordained it. And he's ordained these authorities to punish, verse 14, those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. Now, again, I haven't, I haven't been, I've been stopped for speeding. I haven't been stopped for, for doing the speed limit. Um, but that would be great if they would, they would give me a thumbs up sometimes. Uh, but that's the general idea here. And back in 2019, uh, a man who apparently decided to mock some alligators jumped into a bayou in Texas near the Texas-Louisiana border, and there had been some signs posted. This is 2015. And it it said, no swimming, alligators. But he wanted to swim. And so he had people calling out to him, saying, don't go in that water. But he removed his shirt. He removed his billfold. Someone shouted out to him, and he said, blank the alligators. You want to know how that went for him? He died. He got in the water and he was killed by an alligator. If only those authorities hadn't tried to rob Mr. Woodward of his liberty to swim in alligator infested water. Oh wait, it seems they were actually trying to protect his liberty to live. Authorities are there for a purpose. And now you're thinking, well, what about? And I get it. We have lots of what abouts. And even Peter is the one who said in Acts 5, when they've been brought before the high council, the council and the high priests, the Jewish authorities. And he says, and they're saying, hey, we told you not to do something and you're preaching anyway. And Peter says, and the other apostles, we must obey God rather than men. That is still true. We must obey God rather than men. And yet, let us not use the exceptions as excuses to ignore the call to submit to those that have been placed in authority over us. So, we don't live in a contradiction between those two, but we do sometimes wrestle with the application of it. But, most Laws or rules that you have to submit to yourself to through human institutions are not in contradiction to God's law. Believe me, I think there are some roads that should have a higher speed limit. But there's nothing in the Bible that I can point to that says that road should be 45, not 35. I'm called to submit 
to what God has put in front of me. And oftentimes when I say, well, why do I have to do that? The emphasis on the I and not the that. What is often reflected is our desire to enthrone ourselves, not to follow in submission to the Lord. Our default is not towards submission or recognizing the Lord's sovereignty underneath other appropriate exercises of authority. And so we have to interrogate our own relationships. And finally, we not only submit to God through authority, but also for his glory. And the Christian is the most free person in this world. The North Korean Christian who's in a labor camp is more free than the person in our country who does not know Christ. And you think, how can that be? Well, again, we're free from the condemnation of sin over us, free from the tyranny of Satan. And, and because of the resurrection of Christ, we will know freedom from the grave. Death will not be able to hold us down. We are free now, but not as free as we will one day be. And knowing that then changes the way we live. It's radical because we are living with a view beyond what we can see or experience in this world. And it's radical because we are willing to lay down our lives or even give up our rights if it will help the cause of the gospel in this world. How do you commend the gospel in this world? One of the ways that you do that is how you live in your attitudes about what the Lord commands Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, that is God's good, the good that he commands, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And there are lots of foolish people out there. And we can be that at times. But think about this. Your life is a walking sermon. And if that's the case, what are you preaching? We are not perfect by any means. But our submission to God and proper authority should have a goal. We glorify God through that good that we do in the world, which silences that which is not true and right about the God we serve. Christ frees us to live a life of submitted service. And in the early church, the, some of the church leaders would say, if you're going to condemn us, come look at our lives. Come look at how we live. If you're going to condemn us to death or condemn us to prison, come look at us. And you'll see our submission to God and to the authority. And if we do the wrong thing, then we should be punished. But come and look. Come and see. And Christ frees us to live that life of a submitted ser service, just as Christ himself did. All for the gl glory of God. So look at verse 16. Here's the purpose. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then finally, in verse 17, we see this uh, rapid-fire, staccato uh, imperatives. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor is on both ends, fear and love in the middle. And our king is the one that is above all kings. And so he gave himself for us. And so we're willing to do the same for others. Jesus had every right to call for unquestioned submission from everyone. 
but instead he willingly gave himself to be a sacrifice and a servant. And so we are called to follow where he leads. So we honor everyone, everyone who's made in the image of God. And we love the brotherhood, as we've already talked about loving one another. And we fear God, which reflects our submission to him. And indeed, we honor the emperor. As we are able to do, how do we fulfill that? How do we fulfill any of that? By submitting our entire lives to the glory of God through Christ. And we are never more free than when we are keeping God's law. Let me end with this. We started in 13th century Scotland and we'll end in 16th century Scotland. And I still don't have an accent. In 1596, King James VI of Scotland. Yes, that King James that you may be thinking of had a private audience with one of the prominent Presbyterian pastors of the country, Andrew Melville. He had been sent, deputized by his colleagues because of concerns with a policy, a royal policy, that was undermining gains for the gospel that had been made in Scotland during the Protestant Reformation. And eventually Melville lost his patience with King James, not, not losing all his courage, He called him God's silly vassal. Indeed, he was ordained by God, but he might have been being silly. That's pretty bold, isn't it? And he went on to say there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus, the king, and his kingdom, the kirk, which is the Scottish word for church, whose subject King James VI is, and of of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. You see what he's saying? You may be the king in Scotland, but before God, you're nothing other than simply a member. It's a gutsy way to talk to a king when kings had quite the authority. And yet, it shows us the balance that we got to strive for as we live out our freedom pointing anyone and everyone, regardless of their relative power, which we may submit to, to the greater authority that we also and must submit to, for Christ is our king. Everyone else's authority is derived, and we are free to follow him where he leads in this world as we make our way to our true home. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And it is radical as it calls us to live in quite a different way than the world around us. So, Lord, may our lives and may our church be a reflection of our submission to you. And as we do that, may we yield to the proper authorities and give you glory in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.